Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast. This free podcast is made possible through gifts by people like you. Please consider making a donation through the donate button on the website to help us offer unique audio, video, and text-based teachings on the internet and to grow this community library. Michael's teaching bridges the gap between inner healing and social change by synthesizing traditional spiritual teachings with the insights of the West. To learn about Michael's international retreats and workshops, please visit michaelstoneteaching.com. Thank you for your support. So, good evening. This is the second uh, talk on Carl Jung and what it has to do with what we're doing together. Um, when, when Jung was eight years old, it was really hard for him to be around other people. Has anyone ever had this experience? Yeah. And it caused him a lot of anguish. And so he started to have this feeling of um, a split in him, where there was this inner world that was really rich, and it was the world that belonged to dreams and images and visions. And then there was this other world that had to somehow engage with other kids. And the more he was at school engaging with other kids, uh, the more he actually felt alone. And um, in his eighth year, the other thing that happened was he became really interested in religious symbols and religious images. Uh, His father, also named Carl, um, as that's what you did then in Vienna, um, was a pastor. And so he was always seeing different religious images. And um, he was really interested primarily in the Trinity. And so he asked his father one day, who, who spent his whole life in the church, what's the meaning of the Trinity? And his father uh, kind of stumbled in his answer and couldn't answer. And Jung was shocked and disappointed and thought his father was a fraud and felt badly for his father and described his father as being powerless from this point on that he thought his father was living in like a hollow shell where he was doing all the moves that a pastor does um, but actually didn't really understand what he was doing. So then again there was this split that kind of tore him apart where his father, who's the person he put his trust in and really imagined his father had this deep connection to a religious life that Jung was starting to intuit in his own experience... Um, in the end um, couldn't really uh, explain what the meaning was behind uh, the Trinity. So Jung started to go out into their back garden and the garden had a very large stone wall and there were some holes in the wall and in some, some of the stones were sticking out of the wall and in some areas of the stone wall there were no stones and there was just a cavern and he started building fires in the cavern. And he had this idea that other people have always built fires, but 
if he could build a fire and keep it going for a long time, then this would be like the primal fire. It's like he would be connecting with uh, the fire that had existed for a really, really long time. And so he started to, to create these fires. And, and here's what he says. I could build a fire that had to burn forever. No one but myself was allowed to tend to the fire. Others would light other fires on other caves. But these fires were profane and did not concern me. My fire alone was living and had an unmistakable aura of sanctity. In front of this wall, a stone jutted out. So he's really interested in this fire and then this stone that came out of the wall. And so one day, while the fire was going, he sat down on the stone and suddenly he had this experience that he didn't know if he was sitting on the stone or if the stone was also thinking, here I am a stone on this slope and he is sitting on me. And this was like this uh, mind trap that he couldn't get out of and he was completely perplexed by it. And he started spending hours sitting by the fire on this one stone that came out of the wall, wondering, am I sitting on the stone? Or is this stone here and having an experience of me sitting on the stone or both? How, how does this get resolved? If you could open the door. Um, and so this really tore him apart. You can kind of feel his anxiety, can't you? I mean, he's trying everything to kind of resolve some split. Not just in himself, but he starts seeing that whatever way he thinks, it's a, a dichotomy. It's binary. Um, so then he has this sense that he's actually two people. And so he realizes that he's actually personality number one and personality number two. He describes at first that personality number one is the kid who's trying to learn algebra. Right? That's his first way of thinking about it. Personality number one is when I'm the kid who's trying to learn algebra and not uh, very good at it. And personality number two is this feeling I have of being an old man. And when he has this thought, he has an image of being much younger and being with his parents on the street in Zurich and watching a buggy go by from the 18th century. Well, he doesn't know, he, th he imagines it's from the 18th century. It has uh, very big back wheels and he remembers clearly the color and how it was shaped and the old man driving it. And this was one of his most powerful childhood memories that he remembers. And this sense that when he sees this buggy, so you can imagine you see a car go, well, we don't have cars that are 200 years old, but imagine, you know, a buggy goes by, and he has this sense that he belongs to that era of that buggy. So this part of him doesn't belong in these times. Something about this buggy made him feel like that, that's actually who he really is. And he ended up in this time, but really he's from another time. And so he starts describing himself uh, to himself this way. Um, he says in his autobiography, he says it this way. 
At that moment, I came upon myself. Previously, I had existed too, but everything had merely happened to me. Now I happened to exist to myself. Now I knew all myself. Now, now I exist. Then, to my inf- intense confusion, it occurred to me that I was actually two different persons. One of them was the schoolboy who could not grasp algebra and was far from sure of himself. The other was important, a high authority, a man not to be trifled with, a powerful and influential as a manufacturer. This other was an old man who lived in the 18th century, wore buckled shoes and a white wig, and went driving in a fly with high concave rear wheels between which the box was suspended on springs and leather straps. This notion sprang from a curious experience I had when we were living in Klein Huningen. An ancient green carriage from the Black Forest drove past our house one day, and it was truly an antique, looking exactly as if it had come straight out of the 18th century. And when I saw it, I felt, that's it, sure enough, that comes from my times. So I, I think you can hear here as a kid that what, was, what happened last week, we were talking about the dream with Freud, and how in the dream he went down a house, and as he got lower and lower in each level, the house got older and older. Eventually they were stone slabs. Eventually he found these two heads. And so there's this theme throughout, even as a child, that on the one hand, here we are in this, uh, what seems like an ahistoric time. We're gathered together, uh, very present. And on the other hand, Jung has a sense that even what's going on now, like we're just fossils. And inside of this experience that's happening now, we're actually acting out something much older and much bigger than we even realize. And that the unconscious, what's outside of our awareness, is not just what we're pushing outside of our awareness. It's actually influencing us. And as he said last week, what's important is not just that there's a deeper layer of the unconscious that's influencing us, but that it works as a compensation. So that the unconscious is always active, and it's compensating for when the consciousness has too narrow an attitude. Mm -hmm. Are there any questions about this before we go further? It's just like everything. Well, were you here last week? (laughs) Um, I I think the month is going to be really cumulative because I actually want to get through the essay (laughs) we've never done Um, so, so at the time when Jung and Freud were still together having tension there's this there was this idea in psychoanalysis, and it continues today, that what's unconscious is what consciousness, or what we sometimes call the ego, uh, can't integrate. And so it represses uh, different experiences into the unconscious. 
And Jung said, yes, that, that's true. He agreed with Freud. But he said, um, that means, well, if you started really analyzing the personal unconscious, you could free it and there would be no unconsciousness anymore, which is impossible. He's saying that actually what's really happening is that, yes, the ego is splitting different parts or different content into the personal unconscious, but beyond that, there's this bigger unconscious that we all share. And the unconscious is made up of archetypes. He uses this word archetypes. And archetypes are not really thoughts. They're like thought patterns. And that the deeper layers of the unconscious are organized in patterns. And those patterns tend to be organized in images. And if you want to start to understand those images, you actually need to look at art and mythology and religion. Because the way dance happens, or the way narratives happen, or the way uh, art is structured through the times, it captures uh, these narratives that are forcing their way into consciousness. And that all of us have to pay attention to these aspects or these patterns that are trying to show consciousness or show the ego something that it can't see. And that to say that what the ego can't see is just what the ego's pushed away doesn't really describe for Jung how the unconscious works. And sometimes he talks about it as like the ego is like a cork floating on the ocean, just hanging on. And is kind of a, a, a hanging on as a defense against all that's swimming in the sea. Which can be very threatening when you realize how big unconsciousness is. So, so this is sort of the, the model he's thinking of. And this is what we spoke about last week, because this is why he, he split with, with Freud. And... Um, in the essay that we're going to get to in a second, um, uh, you're going to see how he starts kind of building on this on this idea. Does that does that make sense a little bit, Christian? Yeah. And like I said, this is a key element that I think gets missed in the popular reading of Jung. Is not just his focus or emphasis on a collective unconscious that is horizontal in the sense that we all share, but is also um, uh, temporal in that it, it goes back, we've all shared it. So it's like the psychic side of talking about genetics. This is what the archetypes are. Or in yoga terms, these are the sanskaras. Is there a hand up back there, Ella? Yeah. Almost well, I don't want to go there yet because I feel like then I'm offering my like we're offering our yoga commentary on Jung. Let's. Let's just stay with Jung a little longer, because he doesn't talk about karma yet. 
but he gets to it. Yeah. But I mean, if you want to think about it that way, you could. Yeah. I already slipped the word scar in there. I didn't say that. <laughs> I take it back. <laughs> Okay, so uh, we're only in the third or fourth paragraph. It's nice the paragraphs are numbered. I promised I would photocopy more, but I, I photocopied 50, so I don't know. Does everybody have them or not really? Maybe you could share them, or maybe I just have to read. Okay, so um, a woman comes to see Jung and... Um, she well let me just say something about the tone of the essay Jung and Freud split Jung loses all his colleagues Jung uh, pretty much loses all his teaching uh, posts because they're all dependent on him you know taking Freud's work further but I think at a deeper level, what Jung really lost is like this scaffolding or this way of seeing his own life. And so he's trying in these papers to use the dreams of his clients and his experiences with his patients to, uh, as evidence because his audience were scientists and his audience was all in the medical field. So it's important to understand that he's writing in this strange way where he's saying, well, actually, the only evidence I have is from uh, dreams, the dynamics with my patients, my own investigation of my inner life, and um, um, mythology. (laughs) So, you know, you could imagine what people thought at the time. Whereas Freud really presented himself... uh, as a literary man, as, an, as a science man. So this woman comes to see uh, Jung. Um, her father has recently died, and she's unable to meet a man. And this is going on a lot, to the point where it becomes for her a neurosis. So for Jung, this is a pretty straightforward Interaction. It's not like the kind of people he's used to seeing with intense physical symptoms or schizophrenia or psychosis. Um, she basically is trying to uh, meet a man, and it's not happening. Um, and then she has this curious dream. Uh, her father, and Jung says, who in reality was of a small stature, was standing with her on a hill that was covered with wheat fields. She was quite tiny beside him, and he seemed to her like a giant. He lifted her up from the ground and held her in his arms like a little child. And the wind swept over the wheat fields, and as the wheat swayed in the wind, he rocked her in his arms. This dream happens at a time where... This woman it thinks of Jung as a god. And Jung has this feeling with her that she is treating him like a god. She thinks he's amazing. He can cure everything. And uh, this is called in psychoanalytic uh, language at the time, transference, which is just a fancy word for projection. And Jung gets this idea that 
if something's unconscious, then you can't know it. I think I quoted him last week saying, if it's unconscious, it's unconscious. Right? So if something's unconscious, it's not like you kind of get a sense of it. If it's unconscious, in Jung's term, you don't know what it is. It's totally outside of awareness. And when something's unconscious, the only way you recognize it is through projection. So what happens is, because you can't see it, you project it onto somebody else. We all do this every day. I do this. Sometimes I'm in a bad mood and I see a friend, I'm like, you look in a bad mood. <laughs> you know? Or like you're in a rush and everyone looks too slow. You know? So those are sort of simple examples during the day. But as we all know in relationship, they can get really complicated. Right? So Jung has this feeling that he's being turned in to a god. And then she has this really interesting dream where in the dream, Jung is like this giant, or there's a man who's a giant holding her in, holding her up. She's so small. And the wind is swaying. Right? And um, Jung is really interested in this. And he's saying, maybe there's something deeper here going on. Why would I interpret this as I've been trained that she is seeing me as a god? That's not what the dream is saying. The dream is saying she is having an experience of god. She's having an experience of being held up really high, this male figure, which is the way the culture at the time talked about god, the wind, which Jung then says etymologically comes from the word spirit, um, and he starts reading into the dream that instead of analyzing it in this small way that the dream is about the therapist, that maybe this dream is also trying to do something, trying to set something up. So he says, I naturally ask myself, what was the source of this, what was its purpose? I'm reading um, paragraph 214. That it must have some purposive meaning, I was convinced, because there is no truly living thing that does not have a final meaning. That can, in other words, be explained as leftover from antecedent facts. The energy of the transference is so strong, it gives one the impression of a vital instinct. That being so, What's the purpose of such fantasies? A careful examination and analysis of the dreams, especially of the one just quoted, reveals a very marked tendency in contrast to conscious criticism, which always seeks to reduce things to human proportions. So he's saying, you can't just have a dream about God. The image is always going to reduce itself to a human proportion. Just like in... Christianity, we're always personifying God as Jesus. He had to be gigantic, primordial, huger than the Father. Huger? <laughs> like the wind that sweeps over the earth. Was he then made to be was he then to be made into a God? I said to myself, was it rather the case that the unconscious was trying to create a God out of the person of the doctor? to free a vision of God from the veil of the personal so that the transference to the person of the doctor 
was no more than a misunderstanding of the, on the part of the conscious mind, a stupid trick played by sound common sense. Could the longing for a god be a passion welling up from our darkest instinctual nature, a passion unswayed by any outside influence, deeper and stronger perhaps than the love for a human person? Isn't this interesting? What, what if this is just the psyche wanting to connect with something bigger than itself? Then he goes on. This is uh, paragraph 216 at the end. From this, I realized that dreams were not just fantasies, but self-representations of unconscious developments, which allowed the psyche of the patient to gradually outgrow, sorry, to gradually grow out of the pointless personal tie. Did you catch that last time I read that one? (laughs) That was a good one. From this I realized that the dreams were not just fantasies, but self-representations, so again, personifications, of unconscious developments, which allowed the psyche of the patient gradually to grow out of the pointless personal tie. Then at the end, it is not a question of inherited ideas, but inherited thought patterns. So he's saying, so when she has a dream, what's showing up in the dream is not something that she's personally created, not something that necessarily has to do with her father, but some kind of deep, image in the psyche that consciousness needs to pay attention to that's bigger than just the personal so this is so different than Freud for Freud it all goes back to the personal childhood dynamics and Jung is saying there's an instinct in us that's deeper than that and what's deeper than that is to connect with something that he here is calling a passion that, that's much bigger than our lives in order to give our lives meaning. So, what Jung is trying to show here in this first part of the essay is that his method has to do with having a kind of eros relationship with images. To have a love relationship with images to have a loving relationship with dreams. And the word love, he means a love that can include hate. Just like, you know, mature creativity can include, you know, destruction. To have a love for images where you can hate them and you can struggle with them and you can be scared of them, but that one becomes resilient and one becomes healthy when instead of treating the neurosis personally, you see your neurosis as an invitation into a level of the psyche that is trying to show you something. That's purposive, he says. And again, this is this, this idea of compensation that he's always trying to, trying to work with here. And that level of the psyche is so old, it doesn't speak in words It speaks in images. And the psyche is structured in images. 
And how do we develop a relationship to the psyche that builds soul, that builds character, that the way one grows up, the way one matures, is to actually fulfill what these deeper layers of the unconscious demand of us. And some things that are demanded of us have to do with the way our personalities were structured through our attachments as kids. And Jung saying, that's so small. There are some bigger demands that we have in our life that we have to fulfill in what we do as a livelihood, in how we uh, choose, in how we, how we make big decisions, and what we're not listening to when we're so focused on the personal are these kind of deeper structured demands. And they've existed for all people all the time. And at certain ages, there are certain demands that are, are placed on us. Separating from our family, separating from our parents, coming up with our own ideas uh, as just an example that we all have to struggle with in different ways. And Jung says to really get a sense of this life, it's better to go to dreams. It's better to go to mythology. It's better to turn to literature to kind of understand that level of the psyche. Because maybe the people who understand it more are the people who have tried to explore those regions without so much theory on the end <laughs> So, I remember when I started seeing people in psychotherapy, I, I was very interested in dreams. And I remember one day, uh, well, my supervisor would always have me write down people's dreams or get them to write it down and keep a hold of them. And I, I remember I had this realization that people dreamt more about their old loves like even from 40 or 50 years ago than they do about their family. I remember this being a peculiar thing. Like we spend so much talking about family dynamics as therapists and learning about family dynamics. And I remember thinking, but if you just look at the data of dreams, that's not primarily what people are dreaming about. I mean, there are phases where that's true. But I remember looking through people's dreams and seeing but mostly they're dreaming about old old love, you know. And then it's interesting, Jung's kind of playing with that in this, in this dream uh, sequence. So, before I keep going, what, what, what do you hear in this? I mean, I think we've covered a lot so far. Yeah, and, and Jung is saying that maybe this patient 
uh, well, it gets further on in the essay, but, but maybe what this patient just needs to learn is to have a more, Jung uses the term eros, a more eros relationship with her dream life, with her inner life. That actually the neuroses, what Freud called it the presenting symptom, the presenting symptom was just a doorway to see something much deeper that needed to happen in her inner life as a change of attitude rather than just, I need to heal this to get a husband. For Jung, that's totally besides the point. That's just way up here on the surface. So, I mean, when you look under the surface, what are the things that structured us? When was the experience for you when you were young and you saw something and thought, I belong to this. I remember the first time I ever went to a yoga class. And I remember just having this feeling, I, I, I knew everything the teacher was going to say. I mean, I couldn't do all the things, but I, I just, I was home. You could say I got stuck there. <laughs> Jack, maybe just speak up so people can hear. I'm just um, kind of thinking about the comment about the health and resiliency of embracing that kind of relationship with the dreams um, in order to um, allow the spirit to grow Mm -hmm. in the soul and how that's the antithesis of what our society does Mm -hmm. and how sick we are as a society for that very reason yeah I mean, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm stating the obvious, obviously, but it just, it's kind of profound when yeah. you think about it. That there's this, you know, this trapping, like you say, to be very scientific and very analytical about things, which just destroys yeah. that resilience. I mean, I, I used to have the feeling sometimes, uh, you know, I don't practice psychotherapy anymore, but I used to have this feeling like, what ended up in my office was just like the fallout from our from capitalism. Like people who they they couldn't handle just producing and consuming anymore. And what I mean by that is to to tend to the inner life is what Jung is suggesting. And one thing we didn't get into here, we might not tonight, is this idea of countertransference. That when someone projects something onto you, you then project something back to them. It could be your position, your bias, what they stir up in you. I think what Jung is saying is that countertransference actually happens before the transference. That because what he's saying to therapists is by you posing as not an analyst, but as like a servant or a guide to these deeper layers of the psyche. The transfer, it's a setup so that what you're showing your patient is that it's possible actually to listen more closely and more creatively to the images that are presenting. And that way, instead of the doctor analyzing the content of the patient, Together, they're just kind of like walking into this realm. And that because it's happening for the patient, the analyst has a little more confidence. 
the therapist is a little more confident, and they're saying, I can hold you here. We can hold this space together, and you can turn me into all kinds of things. And I might turn you into things, too. Um, but what we're paying attention to is what the psyche wants. It's a kind of flip that he's trying to do. And you can see it just as a reaction to the times um, also. And um, that way the therapist is working from the position that whatever the soul is bringing into the room is going to increase the beauty and um, uh, depth of one's life. Whatever comes in. And right away, the patient is going to oppose that. Because the ego can't handle that that can all be held. So this is a very interesting, interesting dynamic. Lana? So when the ego can't hold something, it's, it gets like Jung saying, it gets projected onto somebody else. But then, as like as meditators and as people who kind of have sense of this in our own lives, mm-hmm. what, what do you do? Jung saying you don't have a sense of it. If it's unconscious, you don't have a sense of it. So we're listening. We're listening. And when we start to see that there are places that we're caught, we start paying attention. And then sometimes the place we're caught is like an old pattern we learned when we were seven. And we're turning the other person into the teacher. And, you know, there's a dynamic going on. And Jung is saying... That's one level. The other level is all transference, all projection is a need, is, is an is a opportunity to cultivate love. But for Jung, the love is not just a love of two people. It's, it's a love relationship with what our life demands of us. You see? So what you're saying is really interesting, which is, what does my life demand of me? And where am I holding back? And yes, some times we're holding back because, you know, we had a stubborn father who said, you can't, you can't do it, always putting us down. And Jung saying, okay, but there's something else. Because if you don't, if you don't, open up in this loving way to what your life demands. And that also means when things change. Sometimes your life can demand something of you for a decade, and then it demands something else. <laughs> right? Well, many of us have had this experience. You're set on this career, you've built it up, center of gravity is happening, you're teaching, you finally have an income, people are coming, it's all great. And then you realize, well, actually, there's something else I'm supposed to do. I'm really supposed to be a pilot. <laughs> Whatever. I'm not joking, actually. <laughs> so the way you do it as a meditator is 
mind and dharma, they, they harmonize. So when you're sitting, different things, uh, images arise, and the mind harmonizes with them, and they pass. And then sometimes you get caught, and you come back to the, the body, and the breathing, and the posture, and then you just let whatever's happening just sort of harmonize the, the water in the pipe, the pipe in the water, the temperature of the room. And then sometimes we see there are just places where we're caught, just caught. In yoga, we call that a granti. In psychoanalysis, we call it a neurosis. You choose. <laughs> now, in yoga, a granti is just a symptom of a samskara. It's not the deep pattern. And exactly the same here. A neurosis is just a symptom. Jung lets, actually, Jung lets go of the word neurosis later and replaces it with the word complex. A neurosis or a complex is just a symptom of a deeper pattern that wants attention. You may think it's just that you blink your eyes a lot or you have to touch the doorknob 20 times before you go out or um, you know, you're obsessive about how you, you know, things go in the fridge or whatever, right? I don't know what it is. But Jung's saying, well, that's actually just the presenting symptom. So... Jess. I'm wondering if there's something about... Um, Can you just speak up a little yeah. louder? I'm getting old. <laughs> I, said, I wonder if there's something about you know, stepping out of the role of, like, Florida as a father, like, as a clinician, I'm going to treat you, I know, where it, both people actually start to imagine. There's a sense of opening the doorway to, you know, stepping out of roles in general. And that some, something about that is really important. Yeah. That yeah. Kind of transcends the doctor patient relationship. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Were you here last week? No. Oh. Okay. Yeah. So your spirit probably forgot. <laughs> but that's what we covered last week was was there was a dream and Jung was interpreting one of Freud's dreams on a long seven-week trip they were on, and Jung and Freud stopped him and said, I can't risk my authority. He couldn't do it. So, so, but you can see how, even before that, there's this personality number one and personality number two. You know, you can see before that, there's this father he wants in Freud that he couldn't get in his father. He thought Freud was the real thing. And then in that moment when Freud wouldn't go there with him, he saw again the collapse of the the father. This person he most trusted. I, I think what's important about this too, just to stay with this idea of images and tending to the psyche is, as meditators, we're learning how you know, Dogen has this line where he says, to turn the light back inwards. That's what we're doing when we're meditating, to turn the light inwards. And, and I think what we're learning how to do is stabilize so that 
when these movements of the psyche show up in our lives, um, we can look at them from a place that's really stable and sane Mm -hmm. and not be split apart by them. Although, sometimes that's what's needed. Maybe for years. Lori, did you have your hand? Himself. Yeah, he was on his own. And and he really thought that he would have to sac he I don't want to jump ahead too much, but he hits a point where he realized he's gonna to have to sacrifice his whole life for what he calls the diamond. So what happens is is that I talked about him at eight, but when he's nine years old his feeling of personality number one and personality number two becomes so distinct that he needs to find a way to keep it together. And and so we remember at seven it was the fire and the stone at eight. So then he takes his... So every kid in school has a a yellow pencil case with pens and a ruler. And he takes his ruler and he carves into the top of the ruler an old man. And then he paints the man uh, black and then he cuts him off, the ruler, and hides this old man in his pencil case. And then later hides it in his house somewhere. And then, knowing that this old man exists, keeps him together knowing that this old man, which he calls the diamond, and then the diamond, as he grows up, becomes that part of the psyche that demands he live according to what it wants. And he just struggles the rest of his life with what he calls the diamond. And I just want to add for those of you, especially those of you who are studying psychology, and there's many therapists in here. In 1953, when his autobiography came out, uh, the, pretty much the most well-known psychologist of the time in England, Donald Winnicott, uh, got hold of the book and read it and wrote a review. And Winnicott didn't like a lot of of Jung's biography and the way it was written, but he said that Jung's description of how he held together personality number one and personality number two resolved for Winnicott in his own life these deep splits that he felt. And Winnicott, who at the time was the most creative and important theorist, uh, especially of child psychology, was... Jung's writing about personality number one and personality number two totally changed his life. And and if you read his book review, it's really personal and really revealing. It's, it's really beautiful. So, I mean, this is the koan. You know, there's that wonderful line, you know, 
the, the hardest koan is your life? I mean, isn't this what we're doing when we practice? Is to allow in what's really going on. And usually the deeper structural callings that we have, they don't happen during the meditation practice. During your meditation practice, it's mostly just stabilizing. But then when you get stable, there is something about the psyche that I don't know how to explain that then kind of sees like, oh, she's stable. Like on retreat, whenever someone comes in and says, it's really peaceful, I'm really calm, it's really good, the light's good, the food's good, I always think, here we go. (laughs) Two more days. (laughs) Any day now, you know. So it's almost like the, the shaft of awareness kind of drops down, stabilizes, and then there, there's something that then says, okay, now you're ready to, to see something else and to see a little more. And I don't think you can do it alone. Jung barely held on. I think he's heroic that way. The Buddha is heroic that way. I'm not... <laughs> So, uh, even at the end of his biography, Jung says, uh, uh, nobody goes at this alone. We need guides. And for Jung, he had to make them up. And then he says, if you can't make what's unconscious conscious, it will happen outside to you as fate. In other words, if something's pressing for consciousness, it's coming to you over and over, and you won't do the work and look at it, you know, you'll fall <laughs> and hurt yourself. Something will happen uh, to make you see it. It'll happen outside uh, as fate, outside the inner life as fate. Any other comments? Oh, there it is. What about contemporary writers or people that inspired him or yeah. were grounded in what he was thinking and feeling? Was there anybody noted? Or? Lots. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, I, I mean, I think the person who really took Jung's work and ran with it is a guy named James Hillman. Mm-hmm. And, and especially if you read Hillman's early work, when Jung died, a very young James Hillman took over the Jung Institute in Zurich. And it was a fascinating guy. So. Joseph Campbell. Any other comments or questions? Really? Oh, here they are. I find that his view, his cosmology is so hopeful. It points to a capacity for great compassion that he clearly believes is evident in all of us. Yeah. 
help but think of Bodhicitta. Mm-hmm. He recognized mm-hmm. he recognized the, the capacity for Bodhicitta. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, for Jung, um, he probably wouldn't use the term bodhicitta. He wouldn't know it. He mostly knew about kundalini yoga he was interested in, and he became really interested in Taoism. There's a Taoist text called The Secret of the Golden Flower that became his like prized possession. And the Tibetan Book of the Dead, of course. The first translation in English had Jung's foreword. Um but that spirit of seeing that inside of every deity, the wrathful deities, the peaceful deities, the compassionate deities, is me. And how do I become one with that? So in a way what he's saying to his patient here is, how do, I, how do you become one with that? How do you enter that dream? How do you let that dream enter you? And this is what we're doing. So the bodhicitta is not just, a, you know, um, some consistent, perfect state, but it's that ability also to say, "Oh, I can be one with, one with this." And in that sense, for, for sure, that's the stream Jung was swimming in. I have to think more about that. That's a really good, good comment. Yeah. Uh, would there be a connection then with the idea of our shadow when we talk, and you know, like with that father figure that in the end you have to combine? So, like everybody has their their shadow that you have to embrace. Yeah. To, well, when we talk about the term shadow, we're getting it from Jung. It, oh, oh, I see. Yeah. Yeah. He doesn't get into it in this essay. But he talks about the relationship between the persona and the shadow. And the persona comes from the Greek, so, sona is sound, and a persona is a mask, because it's, it lets sound come out. And uh, whenever you have a mask, you have to leave something out. And that's what he calls the shadow. Yeah. Yeah. So you can see the same kind of ideas there percolating in that in that theory. Yeah. It's a nice thing about Jung is his kind of theories in his biography really like weave together some really, really interesting ways. Someone who hasn't hasn't had a chance yet. Don't be shy. Are there any terms reviews that are confusing? Sebastian? I just think of it and it reminds me I can't remember the name of the book. I think it's The Little Pilgrim by a Korean monk. And, and I just remember after reading that, um, you know, it's like all these like deities and all these things. It's just almost like uh, you start to see the magic in the world again. You start to see magic, something. It's not just black or white. It's you, you let the imagination. Say, I'm looking up into a tree and I see Buddha sitting in the tree. Mm-hmm. And you're totally fine with that. Yeah. It's like just bringing this sense of childhood wonder and yeah. magic. That's the kind of feeling I get as yeah. we kind of explore this. Yeah. Jung seems to think that the magic, visual, and auditory experiences that humans once had out there 
in the sky and forests and trees and patterns of stars and the weather, now we have inside. So that we relate, or he felt we really need to relate to the vast unconsciousness um, in the same way that people related to seeing the gods out there. Now the gods are in here. That was really the paradigm he was creating for himself. The gods are in here. Anna. You have to just speak up a little. Did he see the diamond as being like, uh, is he sort of trying to save, keep the diamond as his connection to the unconscious? Like, do you know more about his relationship with that? Oh, oh, well, it's diamond, like D A E M O N. Oh, diamond, okay. Yeah. Regardless, like yeah. that, that old man uh, Eventually he gives... Well, the old... So the diamond... So for a while it's a, a, a stone. For a while it's a fire. For a while it's an old man in a pencil case. Then it actually becomes a stone that he takes and he paints half of it one color and half of it another color. And that stone then becomes, uh, for him, the the kind of diamond and the diamond is this weird thing it's it's not like a transitional object like we say in psychology it's it's more like the thing that's carrying him deeper it's not like a protector he doesn't feel the diamond as like a protection he feels it like this thing that's just going to pull him deeper and deeper and deeper and he has to go just like in that first dream he has that we talked about yesterday, was it a dream? Yeah, the dream, where he, he's willing to go deeper and deeper into his house. So, so I know it sounds a little bit like it's a protector that's kind of holding him together, but it's only holding him together because it's like what's, what's calling to him and saying, here's where you have to go next. And I don't know, I mean, maybe if we had more time, I thought about this, but we can't do it tonight, but maybe we'll do it next time. Is Like, it would be interesting to get in partners or in a group and, and talk together about diamonds we've had in our life and ways they've been represented. Like, where you've had this kind of tension of opposites. And, like, even as kids to think about what did you do to hold, to hold it? And... And did you notice that whatever you chose, in a way it was a protector, but in another way it's also what allowed you to like, go deeper? Or have you also chosen things to make you go away from it? And how in the end those, those don't really serve uh, as a diamond. So the diamond is like another word for like the soul this calling mm. I, I feel like I'm making this face a lot <laughs> because it's not like it's not like the corner of a blanket that you're sucking on you know or like the smell of a teddy bear it's this thing that's that's calling you and it and doesn't resolve anxiety 
actually. It might increase anxiety to get you to listen. To, it might yell at you. And, and, and there's always a place in all of us where we're not listening. One person at the back, and then Carmen, we have to wait till next. Yeah. Um, I apologize in advance. I haven't been in the last two classes. He uses the term purposive a lot and calling. But you could say fulfillment in the sense that there's something we've come alive. It's magical. How did we get this grant, you know? And we have a responsibility to. to, to listen to what this life wants of us. And um, uh, Jung has this really kind of Darwinian belief that life wants something and has a purpose and feels really strongly about this. At the end of his life, Jung most of his reading is at the Gnostics this idea that you have this spark that that you have to listen to or else (laughs) and Jung kind of warns or else and his biography is really a testament to, to letting that be the guiding force not the values of the culture that's personality number one the whole point of personality number two is that personality number one has to be in service to personality number two. And personality number two is old. Mm-hmm. Really old. So in that sense, yes, this, this fulfillment. And the only thing that I would add is the unconscious is not an it. And, and the unconscious is like this realm. It's even wrong to say the. It's just unconsciousness. It's, it's not a thing. You can't like see it. It's not back here somewhere. Just like genetics, you can kind of see it, but it opens up to this vast, vast, vast world. Okay. Time to end. Next week, we're going to look at the second part of the handout, We'll do a little more biography. And I wanted to talk a little bit about schizophrenia and Jung, the way Jung thought about schizophrenia uh, and religion, which is very, really interesting.